Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Bobby Martin. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. I know that we've been teasing for a couple weeks now that we were going to release an episode breaking down the 2020 Democratic contenders' positions on Israel-Palestine. I ended up putting together a thread version of this on Twitter. Um, So we're going to focus on Israel-Palestine this episode. There's a lot going on. And it all ties into Trump's latest round of racist attacks against these four freshman congresswomen. Should we also just tell people what else we have planned for the end of the month? We we still are going to do an entire episode on Jeffrey Epstein. We're going to unpack that whole thing and pull out a lot of really bizarre threads there. Probably right around the same time this podcast is coming out will be part two of the bonus episode I did about uh, political films, my favorite political films. So stay tuned for those as well. Yeah, check it out on patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. Robbie's putting up some bonus content exclusive for patrons only, and we have some really good stuff coming up. We just released uh, an episode just kind of breaking down the headlines for the month, and the episode before that was about the first round of Democratic debates, a complete shit show. So yeah, I'm excited for the next round of debates. (laughs) Um, I heard that Mike Ravel actually didn't make the cut, even though he got the amount of donors. Did you Oh, I heard that, that too. Yeah, but I only heard, I I first I heard everyone being really excited uh that he made the cut and of course his teen, you know, the teens around his campaign were the ones telling announcing it to everybody. It yeah. almost seems like they've dropped the facade entirely of posting as Mike Gravel. Now they just post as themselves using his account, which I it's a little weird to me. They announced it all excited and then when it was actually shown like CNN and all these news outlets showed the de- next debate spread he was not on it. And also, Abby, what's also strange is they rearranged the candidates, dividing them between two debates. And I don't even think they did it based on polling this time, which I find very odd. So now Bernie Sanders is right next to Warren on, on the stage. And the other debate, it's, I guess, Cory Booker, Gabbard, and Yang. I don't know. Have you seen that, the way they divided those? Yeah, dude. So on July 30th, we have Bernie Sanders, Warren, Marianne Williams, I'm sorry, John Delaney, John Hickenlooper, Tim Ryan, Steve Bullock, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, and Pete Buttigieg. And on July 31st, the day after, that's going to be Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Bill de Blasio, Jay Inslee, Kirsten Gillibrand, Tulsi Gabbard, Michael Bennett, Cory Booker, Andrew Yang, and Julian Castro. So they aren't doing it based on polling. Because if they were, then Bernie Sanders, Warren, and Biden would all be in the same debate. So I don't really understand why they're dividing it up this way still. I mean, maybe there's some exact breakdown calculation they're using, but it just seems like arbitrary. Well, I mean, it's probably just going to be some big conspiracy to try to shut down Bernie or you know position him to make him look the worst. It'll be really interesting to see what happens. I hope he goes really hard, though. It just seems odd to take Biden and Kamala Harris away from Bernie Sanders, like matching him up. So I guess the main people to look out for on the July 30th one will be um, Sanders and Warren and probably Buttigieg. Um, Why is there already a second debate? You mean why is it happening at the end of July, which is like really soon? Yeah, I mean, it seemed like the first debate just happened. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I think this is how they tend to do them. I mean, it seems like... In other primary debates, once they start, they happen pretty quickly. I think they really only have three total debates planned, from what I understand. But that can't possibly be right, because then 
you know, how they're going to narrow down the candidates. So they must have more than That's three That's what I'm planned. saying. That's what I'm saying. I wonder if they're, I mean, it's just weird. It's like the people who are polling zero to 1%, like, I don't know. Are they going to wait till the primary actually starts to start dropping out? It's a great question because the last DNC uh, spread was so bizarrely small and narrow. Yeah. I only remember like one debate where it was all the candidates and there was only like five, it seemed like. Well, Robbie, it was her turn. It was Hillary's turn. Yeah, it was Hillary's turn. (laughs) It seemed like it was only O'Malley, Hillary, and Bernie at a certain point too. Yeah. And then it was just Bernie and and Hillary for the rest of the debate. So I don't know how this is going to pan out, but I can't remember actually any other debates, even Republican ones, where it came down to just two people in the primaries. That is actually very unusual. Right. And that's why they, of course, still blame Bernie for Hillary's loss, which is so crazy because he endorsed her. It's a mess. When the superdelegates were voting, I had no idea that Bernie actually won all those states like to that extent. Oh, you, did, you didn't remember that? completely usurped. Yeah, and this is a trick that they've been pulling. You know, you can go back even to Ron Paul at the 2012 convention. He got delegates, some delegates on his side that were going to cast votes for him, and there were actually people like shouting down during the count. Well, before we get into all this, because it's still in the vein of this Bernie stuff, because these Democratic women in Congress... Um, you know, are in line with Bernie and they are hated and loathed for the same reasons that Bernie is. But before we get into the latest there, just a quick plug for the movie again, GazaFightsForFreedom.com. We have added a really, really amazing addition. We are working to finalize that. It is going up in one week at the end of the month. So check it out. It's going to be on either Vimeo or YouTube behind just a small little paywall just so we can try to recoup some of our donations here. But that's coming out, um, and we are setting up a nationwide tour about the movie. So get in touch, GazaFightsForFreedom.com, if you're interested in screening or just simply watching it. You can sign up to the mailing list there, and I always encourage people to just sign up to our mailing lists in general because we don't know where the social media stuff's going to go. So MediaRoots.org is a great uh, hub for Robbie and my work. So go there, sign up for the mailing list, and stay tuned for all the stuff coming up. Yeah. So Bernie is hated alongside Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and Elon Omar. These are four freshman congresswomen who won sweeping elections in kind of unprecedented ways in their districts. And they, you know, wiggled their way into Congress. It was pretty shocking. And it was a huge upset to this tightly controlled democratic establishment, you know, that doesn't allow room for real progressives or leftists or anyone who calls themselves socialists to have space or a seat at the table. That's the exact purpose of the two-party system. That's why we don't have ranked choice voting. We don't have any sort of proportional representation. Other countries have dozens of parties. Uh, It's pretty incomparable that, you know, you'd only have two parties dominating the political sphere, especially in a country this massive. Completely absurd, right? So, of course, these people are hated to such extremes. Um, They are the target of just ire from both the Democratic establishment and the Republican establishment. Um, There's kind of a unified front of hatred for these four women. Which four women exactly are they besides Rashida Tlaib, Ocasio-Cortez, and Ilan Omar? Who's the fourth one? Ayanna Presley. She's an African-American woman. Okay. So, of course, all women of color, 
right? Yeah. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Puerto Rican, but also is from the Bronx. Um, Rashida, who is Palestinian. Um, Ayana, African-American. All, all three of them were born here. They're all American-born American citizens. Elon Omar came here when she was 10 years old. You know, she's, she's an American citizen today. So they've had targets on their back from not only the Republicans, you know, every day, like it seems like AOC and Elon Omar are just like cartoonishly the center of all conservative attacks and the Trump administration. It's pretty disgusting. We've already been talking for months about how, you know, there's such extreme incitements of violence against these women that there actually, you know, could be some sort of violence committed against them just based on the incitement going on from the top down, from the bottom up, from Trump's base. But it's not just them. It's the Democratic establishment who hates them as well. And all these disingenuous attacks that they're anti-Semitic because they dare talk about Palestinians as human beings, because Rashida Tlaib is a Palestinian herself, because Elon Omar is wearing a head covering, religious garb, she's an open Muslim, and she supports BDS, you know? And you have AOC kind of going further than anyone else when the Great March of Return, calling it a massacre. So given all of this, I guess it's not surprising to think that Nancy Pelosi and her ilk and Chuck Schumer, these disgusting centrist pigs, would hate them. But the, but piling on these attacks, you know, piling on these conservative attacks every single day and insinuating that they actually were anti-Semitic, insinuating that Elon Omar was anti-Semitic for simply talking about a lobbying organization is just absurd. You know, it's absurd and it has not helped anything. And in fact, it's given fodder to the conservatives. And I've seen them actually source Pelosi. I've seen them source Chuck Schumer. And there was even that internal poll that was going around, put out by an anonymous staffer, you know, obviously from like somehow tied to Pelosi that was saying no one in Congress like really agrees with their views. And let's be frank. I mean, they're real progressives. <laughs> like that's why they don't agree with them, <laughs> because these people are fake. These people like to hijack identity politics and sell your oppression back to you in a, in a tight little package. So, of course, they hate when people who literally are progressives come in and expose them for who they are. So that's where we're at today. I mean, Robbie, what did you think when you saw Trump's racist tirade of tweets kind of going further than I think he has so far about these four women? Well, Abby, I mean, don't you see this is him playing 40 chess? It was a brilliant move on his part to divide the Democratic Party and, and force the, you know, the centrist wing to become radical left. That's what every, all of his supporters are saying right now, and I think it's totally accurate. This was a brilliant move on his part to become a crazy racist on Twitter and put out love it or leave it rhetoric that's from like late 90s from AM Right Wing Talk Radio, and it's a brilliant move. It's super insane. I mean, why don't you read the craziest part of his thread? I just put it in the doc right here. He starts his tweet out by saying, so interesting to see, quote, progressive, unquote, <laughs> Democratic congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt, inept anywhere in the world, if they have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. What the hell? Well, for, I just want to stop there because that's really interesting. So he's basically mad at them for advocating for like changes in our country, which is something that like any good sitting congressperson should be doing. 
So right. it's just really silly that he would use that. That's what their job is. They're supposed to create new policies to get on their soapbox and advocate for how the government should be run. So it's just right. it's strange that that would be in the center of this tweet storm. So then he continues right. to say, why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they originally came? <laughs> then come back and show us how it is done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi would be very happy to quickly work out free travel arrangements. His original tweet storm cued up a lot of people into thinking he was being racist, xenophobic, which he was. But I feel like the most racist and most crazy stuff he said was like in various speeches after these tweets. Like he actually mm -hmm. insinuated, I think he actually said that Ilan Omar supports Al-Qaeda. He said something that inflammatory recently during one of these rallies. And I can't, I don't have the quote up in front of me, but it got wor much worse than what we're reading to you now in these tweets. And then he basically activated all these MAGA media people to blast Ilan Omar with the same stupid stuff, you know, that video that he posted from a few months ago saying some people did something, some people did something. He kept showing the planes crashing into the World Trade Center. Oh my God. He's having all these people now go full blast on her with everything. So now... There's all these like right wing media people basically trying to say that she's inbred, that right. her husband is her brother. It's like taking the Obama birther thing to the next inevitable level. Why don't just go full blast xenophobia on her and dehumanize her with the aid of the MAGA media apparatus, which is what, what we immediately saw a giant wave of it after this tweet storm came out. Yeah. And even people like Dave Rubin were like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. Like, did she really marry her brother? Like, this needs to be investigated. Oh, my God. Dave Rubin is such a dumb, motherfucking boring asshole. Holy shit. You should watch this <laughs> Marianne Williamson sit down interview with Dave Rubin talking about reparations and the history of slavery. And the entire time he keeps interrupting her because he cannot allow her to just explain how we have a legacy of literally enslaving human beings that lasted longer than the entire length of how long our country has lasted so far. Uh, have you ever been to Germany? No. If you went to Germany 30 years ago, you really felt all the Holocaust guilt. And it's amazing how much has been flushed out now because the, the generations did the right thing. And that war was over in 1945. Civil War was over in 1865, and we are still at the effect of this underlying stuff that we we move on from one generation to another. Do, but so do you when think you there's apologize, a, do you, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, well, do you think there's a little bit of a risk in in sort of, I mean, a couple of times you're referencing the genocide of the Jews to to slavery. Seems like a little bit of a a slippery slope there. No. I don't even know how we can say that actually, and I say that as a Jew. Have you read up much on slavery? Yeah. We're talking abject slavery, Dave. I mean, nobody's in a contest. Nobody has a monopoly on human suffering. This was abject slavery. Million, and also, if you started slavery in 1619 and you had two and a half years, two, two and a half centuries, and then at the end, four, there were four to five million enslaved people, do, do you realize generation after generation how many millions of people we're talking about? Right, right. I'm, well, I'm not diminishing that, but you can also talk about the extermination of six million people and the amount of people that never lived because of that, that would be alive. Or your well, ancestors from, well, from Russia who well, were never given anything and, and came here. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
but the Germans have paid reparations. That's kind of my point. The fact that Germany paid reparations, Germany has done full-on mea culpa. And Dave Rubin was just having a really hard time with it. And he just and he kept bringing up this idea, like <laughs> his main point, this is was really sad, is he was like, don't you think it's a bad thing to make people feel guilty for something that had absolutely nothing to do with? I mean, but I, I don't think at, I'm guilty of, of the guilt. past of anyone else. This is not about guilt. It's a difference between taking guilt and responsibility. There's a difference. If you, if you have a, a company that takes over another company, you inherit their assets and you inherit their debts. And so America inherited the debts of, of, the, of the South. And also there was a lot of, listen, systemic racism that wasn't just in the South either. I was actually really impressed. I mean, I, I kind of gave her some shit for coming off, you know, kind of kooky on the debate stage, but I was really impressed. I mean, if you're going to watch one Dave Rubin interview, watch the one with her because she <laughs> fucking destroys him. She's not like some seasoned progressive pundit. She just does it in this like really humanistic sort of grounded mm -hmm. way. I was really impressed by it. Wow. Um, well, I, I just hate Nancy Pelosi so much. She just makes me sick. You know, here she is, this 20-year-long gatekeeper from, like, anything happening, whether it's impeachment for George W. Bush or impeachment for Trump, um, this fake clap, the only thing that she, you know, has claimed to basically oppose Trump on, this fake clap after the so-to. Um, and then she came out later and actually said it wasn't a sarcastic clap. She was just genuinely clapping for him. But she uh, capitalized on that, Robbie, on her website right now. It's the patron saint of shade selling T-shirts and bags with her little fake clap. Isn't that amazing? It w I mean, to me, it didn't even seem like a fake clap. I feel like she's rebranding no. that to make it seem like it was a fake clap now when it w actually wasn't originally. No, and she even said on record that it wasn't a what fake clap. What the fuck? So what the fuck is going she on She literally here? said like it was not sarcastic. She was like, no, it wasn't sarcastic. It's like, why the fuck are you selling this on your website then, Nancy? So weird. Jesus Christ, I just dude. wanted to clarify so what, what I was saying earlier when I was going on the sarcastic rant. I didn't actually finish what I was going to say is that all yeah. these right-wing pundits are making it seem like this is a somehow grand strategy by Trump to divide the Democratic Party and to force the leadership to adopt the radical left wing of the party. That's what all the, you know, even Ben Garrison made a whole cartoon about it, showing Trump jackhammering into the ground and then it was going, splitting the Democratic Party. <laughs> good. I hope that's the strategy because that would be good. <laughs> Let's let's entertain that possibility. If if that's a strategy, then yeah, that's actually really good. If it forces Nancy Pelosi to defend these people instead of condemning Ilan Omar, which she kind of did originally with that Benjamin's tweet, yeah, that's actually really good. So I don't know what Trump is thinking because actual real progressive policies are the sort of viral popular policies that the Democratic Party has. The old guard is out, man. So I don't know what this, right. if he's doing this for strategy, really fucking stupid. I mean, unless it's all about just creating all this disinformation ammunition to smear and to fear monger about people like Ilhan Omar. Like if he thinks that's going to create some kind of fuel to help him to just bash a Muslim, a black Muslim congresswoman constantly. I mean, then it maybe could just be that like reptile brain for him. I think it is. I think that he's just whipping in, into a frenzy his entire base that hates, with a passion, hates Muslims and immigrants. So it's like all in one. <laughs> yeah. You know, send her back. She's wearing the headscarf. She's black. She's Muslim. It's like, wow. Um, 
Pelosi, not only did she just give Trump a green light, no strings attached to fund these immigration centers, right? These concentration camps at the border. And I'm sure you saw that bizarre video of Mike Pence just solemnly like, you know, with his arms crossed, wearing this weird khaki suit, just standing there like huffing around while all these caged men like animals were just standing there, like all yelling behind this fence. It was so surreal. So Pelosi, you know, all of these words that they have for these concentration camps and how dare ICE and oh my God, we're putting children in cages. They just gave them, they just funded these camps. No strings attached. Um, and then here's what she followed up about this tweet. After Trump directly was like, I'm sure Pelosi can arrange airfare. She said, you know, we condemn like xenophobic comments or whatever that divide our nation. But then she said, Robbie, this is what she said after. She said, well, I still hope to work with Trump on humane immigration policy. Dude, really? Like, first of all, why did you even have to say that in conjunction with condemning these disgusting remarks? Like, you're so desperate to work with these guys and pander to Republicans. Like, that's all you can think about. You're just like, oh, my God, please. We can't wait to work with you. We can't wait to go back to civility. Just like Joe Biden's and the crux of his whole campaign is just like, we're going to work together, guys. What world are these people living in? She's so all over the place. I mean, and, the, the, you know, in a few days uh, after these tweets that Trump wrote, I mean, I, I don't know if you're planning on talking about this. If you are, stop me. But the her basically condemning Trump's racism on the House floor, saying that he is a right. he's racist. And it basically created like a explosive fight on the House floor. Um, and all these people tried to censure her. And even some Democrats uh, said that she was out of order. That's really interesting. I mean, that's probably the most radical thing she's ever done. Which is weird to say because it's like so obvious Trump is a racist. So I don't I don't really know what to make of that. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, I thought it was just a total non-resolution. I mean, it was almost just, it was just completely symbolic. You know, I mean, she introduces this resolution after attacking Elon Omar herself for weeks and weeks, feeding into this frenzy, not defending her. Every time she did defend her, she had to come out and kind of offer some half-ass like support almost of, of the, you know, the other side. Um, and so this resolution was odd. I don't know why she introduced it. I think it was just, again, like a symbolic measure, just like the half-ass clap. So now she'll sell merchandise on her website about passing this anti-racist resolution. Here's what really struck me about this resolution, Robbie, is that even though Nancy felt pressured to do this, um, someone in her circle like leaked immediately this giant statement to Jake Tapper where, he's, um, where he went on a thread and said this, he said, House Democrats appeared unified in their votes this week, but I've spent the day talking to a bunch of them, and many are extremely frustrated. All agree that president's tweets need to be condemned. They spoke under the condition of anonymity so they can be candid. He's like, the president won this one, said one House Dem. Um, what the president has done is politically brilliant. Pelosi was trying to marginalize these folks, and the president has now identified the entire party with them. Here's the craziest part. He said, other House Democrats are conflicted about having to defend the squad, given things they've said and done. Um, they don't like AOC's use of the term concentration camps, and they don't like anti-Semitic comments by Tlaib and Omar. They are really upset about this resolution 
because they don't want to seem like they're conflated and that they think these things too. So in a sense, it it is kind of like what the conservatives actually think Trump is a genius for is happening. I don't think that's why Trump is doing what he's doing, but that is in effect what's happening. And you see these Democrats coming out and all just up in arms about the fact that they had to, you know, they felt pressured to either support this resolution or even condemn the president because I guess condemning the president made it seem like they support Omar. Isn't that disgusting? It is disgusting. I mean, that's in, that's actually interesting that that it's having that effect. I, I actually did not realize that I didn't follow up on that to that extent. So, But how crazy is it that these people actually think that condemning the president's tweets and racism and incitement to violence therefore means that they support anti-Semitic remarks? I know. It's so nuts. Like, I mean, what? it's. I almost feel like condemning the president for racism is like crossing the Rubicon for some of these people. Mm-hmm. Like what they they think that once they do it, they have to like double down or it is very, very disturbing that they would essentially side with the president over over Ilan Omar. And it's like, this is what you're concerned about. You're concerned about how people are going to like compare you to AOC. Yeah. That's what concerns you more. <laughs> yeah. And I find it. It's also funny, too. It's like the media is constantly berating Trump now for being a racist and making these racist tweets. But the one thing you'll never see the mainstream media say is that Ilan Omar is not an anti-Semite. It's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. Like exactly. they don't, they will exactly. never like correct Trump on that aspect of it. But it's right. funny how much they're comfortable doing that now, but not at all comfortable. And you will never see them correct one of the main things that Trump is going after her for this charge of anti-Semitism. So that's, right. you know, that's right. very telling. Right. And every speech that Trump gives, every tweet, he says radical leftists. And he also says communists. Oh, yeah. He so says they're basically communists. Yeah. Jew hating communists. That's what you see over and over and over again. Jew hating communists. Yeah. Really odd. I mean, that Trump is really coming out with that anti-Semitism thing, you know, even saying Jew hating. I mean, th- the thing with this kind of rhetoric that he's using is this will actually turn off the actual real hardcore classic white nationalists in the United States. So that's mm-hmm. what's fascinating about this. He's trying to hit a certain demographic of like reptilian brain conservative people who hate Muslims, but he's not trying to penetrate that deeper layer of white nationalists who hate Jews and also hate right. Israel. Um, I, f- I find it interesting. I mean, I think that it could have something to do with just the Christian evangelical movement. You know, they're absolutely a huge right. Ass voting block, and they are obsessed with Israel. And they're absolutely also obs- obsessed with Israel. obsessed with hating Muslims. Right. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Absolutely. I, I really do think that Trump. Is, yeah, I think you're you're really right about that. I mean, he is stoking the evangelical reptile brain. Um, and he's doing it in a way that I don't remember even the Bush administration doing. It's it's on a whole other level. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it, what's interesting is how Trump knows how to hijack the media circuit, you know, and we've seen this time and again. So, you know, meanwhile, these Epstein videos are coming out. Epstein's charges are being revealed. You know, Dershowitz is now <laughs> saying all kinds of crazy shit. And you have Trump, you know, hijacking the media narrative. It's fascinating, though, how this all plays out, because after Trump's racist tirade, all these right-leaning media not only 
picking up on how Ilan Omar married her brother and is refusing to denounce Al-Qaeda. You know, that's a thing now. Why won't she denounce Al-Qaeda, Robbie? Um, alternatively, people are like, oh, my God, he didn't really mean that. You know, have you seen that? Just like dozens and dozens of commentators and conservative pundits being like, no, like you're misinterpreting him. Not that exact said. narrative, but I have yeah. seen the less shrill conservatives somewhere in the middle trying mm-hmm. to say that this wasn't racist at all. This is like about nationalism and how like they're not, they don't believe in the greatness of America. This isn't about skin color. The media is, you know, making it about skin color. That's a lie. I've seen that slant. Yeah. And I mean, let's just get this out of the way. The fact that Elon Omar is from Somalia. Somalia is bombed daily by U.S. drones. <laughs> We've been bombing Somalia for God knows mm-hmm. how long. Which started, apparently that started under the Obama administration. He's the one who expanded. Yeah, of course. Even though there was probably some activity going on, I'm sure, before him in Somalia. But he's the one who actually expanded the war on terror into Somalia. So drone attacks frequently are happening there. There's special operations, special forces on the ground in Somalia. So it is fascinating when you even go deeper. And it's like, what do you mean the crime-infested, violent countries that you've come from? You know, I mean, what, what has the U.S. done to actually help, you know, destroy these countries? I mean, Puerto Rico, I, I don't know if Trump actually understands that Puerto Rico is a colony of the U.S., um, that they don't have rights, they, they can't you know, participate in our democracy, yet they are just like subjugated under the boot of U.S. empire. Um, so yeah, it's just disgusting, you know. So many people died in the hurricane and it's just like, they're just considered this kind of non, you know, non-country. Um, so it's disgusting as well to have Trump say, go back to your country. And that's why AOC was just like, you mean the Bronx? She's like, I'm from where you are, you sick fuck. Um, so talk about what Trump did in these rallies after these tweets. Yeah. So, I mean, after he made these tweets, like I was saying before, he actually doubled down on them. So he was saying much more inflammatory things at these rallies that they hate Jews, that she supports Al Qaeda. I don't know if he literally said that, but he insinuated it. And it all culminated with him at a North Carolina rally where he started talking about Ilhan Omar again in front of the crowd. And not a surprise at all, the entire crowd started chanting, send her back, send her back. Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. And Trump just turns around, like looking at the audience behind him, in front of him, in the same way he does whenever any other chant comes up during his rallies and he's just sort of like soaking it in and gloating like <laughs> on stage. But the odd part about that was apparently he actually he backed down from that and tried to disassociate himself with that chant specifically later on. But if you really look and see what he said, I mean, he barely disassociated himself from it. Your supporters last night were chanting, chanting, send her back. Why didn't you stop them? Why didn't you ask them to stop saying that? Well, number one, I think I did. I started speaking very quickly. It, it really was a loud, I disagree with it, by the way, but it was quite a chant. And uh, I felt a little bit badly about it. But I will say this, uh, I did, and I started speaking very quickly, but it started up rather, rather fast, as you probably noticed. So, so you'll- 
he still even doubled down on his original accusations against Ilhan Omar. That a congresswoman, in this case, a different congresswoman, can call our country and our people garbage. That's what I'm unhappy so with. You're not unhappy Those about people the in North Carolina, that stadium was packed. It was a record crowd. And I could have filled it 10 times, as you know. Those are incredible people. Those are incredible patriots. But I'm unhappy when a congresswoman goes and said, I'm going to be the president's nightmare. She's going to be the president's nightmare. She's lucky to be where she is, let me tell you. And the things that she has said are a disgrace to our country. And he seems particularly upset with the fact that Ilhan Omar is just constantly coming back at him saying that Trump is a fascist, right. saying that she's Trump's worst nightmare. She's really getting under his skin. And as much as he's spewing his fascist ideology on stage, telling you as citizens to go back because they don't agree with his detrimental policies for our country, we tell people that here in the United States, dissent is patriotic. Here in the United States, disagreement is welcome, debate is welcome. So I like that she's not backing down at all, but I'm also afraid because this will potentially lead to some kind of violence. I hope that she has bigger security detail now. I hope the Secret Service are taking extra care with where she goes and, and looking after her. I don't know what's going on. I, I totally agree. I mean, this is one thing that I think that the mainstream media is actually getting right, is that this does feel like an incitement to violence against these kinds of people, or specifically against her. Yeah, the demand to denounce Al-Qaeda is just beyond the pale. I mean, I saw Jack Sabayek, I saw all of these people running with this, and it just made me want to vomit um, that someone wearing a headscarf needs to denounce Al-Qaeda. <laughs> I mean, it's just sick. Yeah, it's why sick. do you have to denounce Al-Qaeda? I mean, there are plenty of other... It, does that mean you have to denounce everybody who's perceived as evil in the world? It's these people who've been brainwashed by the post-9-11 world we live in. Why are we so obsessed with Al-Qaeda? Zawahiri of Al-Qaeda? If we're so concerned about Al-Qaeda, why don't we take him out? He's the leader of Al-Qaeda. Why isn't anybody talking about taking out the literal leader and founder of Al-Qaeda if they're so scary and important? It's fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, should we send Melania back to her country? I mean, it's just, you know... It just becomes absurd when you think about who's being targeted, who's being told, you know, go back if you don't like it here. Melania is an immigrant. She can barely speak English. As, as speaking know? of Melania, I mean, one thing we're going to all just preview it a little bit here is we were talking about how this might all be a distraction from the Epstein story breaking right now. It could be. Trump knows how to move the needle and get the news cycle to just follow whatever he wants to talk about. A pretty credible reporter is now saying that Trump met Melania at a party put on by Epstein when she was a very, very young woman mm -hmm. who immigrated here. So if there's any truth to that, Trump is pretty much fucked. He's going to have to like right. turn QAnon up to 11 and get them to just distract people so hard away from this shit. It's really all the fault of his own base. The ones who put out Pizzagate and amp that up to such an extent, well, now... Well, what happens when Trump is, you know, really good friends with a person who's raped all these women and underage women? And there's all this proof coming out that he's friends with them. What are they going to do then? They've already kind of written themselves into a corner. I mean, even Zero Hedge, Abby, it's really funny. Zero Hedge, which actually used to be a decent website, every single Epstein article they run doesn't mention Trump's involvement with him. 
The mainstream so media is crazy. not mentioning Clinton at all and only Trump and Epstein. And then like the conspiracy lockstep pro-Trump media is only mentioning Clinton and uh, people associated with the Clintons and not Trump. <laughs> yeah, acting like it's a democratic conspiracy. It's really surreal. I mean, it's surreal to think that Trump like ordered Melania from like a mail order bride catalog and just got her, you know, at the Epstein house, Epstein party house. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this could all be a distraction from from what could be coming towards Trump right now. Um, it'll be really interesting to see what what the fallout is from all this Epstein stuff. Well, it won't matter anyway because Pelosi won't do a goddamn thing. Even if it comes out that Trump was pissing on, like, 11-year-old girls, nothing will happen, nothing will be moved. Pelosi will give him all the money that they want, and she'll just say, please, we want to work with you. So it doesn't matter, actually, what comes out of this. And as you mentioned, he's going to steer the conservative media away from it, and it's going to become partisan garbage once again. If more stuff comes out between him and Epstein, his base will just figure out ways to just deflect from it as well. It's a total information war at this point for them. They don't really care about the actual reality of the situation. Q has really just ruined everybody's brains. Like I was saying a few episodes ago, I mean, even the generic conservative media narrative about Trump is virtually identical to Q's narrative now. They're very similar. Right. That the, all the deep state are Democrats. He's cracking down on these massive sex trafficking... I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's such a mess. Well, the thing about Trump is that he already has like 20 outstanding sexual assault allegations slash rape allegations against him. So like what really would come out of something else that has to do with Epstein? Well, that's a Unless great it's point. Unless it's like little kids. It doesn't even matter at this point because if Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are raping kids, sacrificing children in a pizza parlor or wherever... And Podesta's kill room, then what does it even matter if Trump's grabbing some women's pussies without their permission? Yeah, right. It almost doesn't matter at all. Yes. So what? Yeah. He just so really what? likes women, Abby. Right. And who doesn't? No. <laughs> like, I love how just... <laughs> no, I mean, I even, <laughs> I even heard um, a stand-up, you know, stand-up comedians making, trying to make it seem like that tape was just like normal behavior, that it wasn't sexual assault. And we're, we're getting too sidetracked on the Epstein thing now, but yeah. just I'll leave you with this. Before Epstein co episode comes out, make sure to watch the video of Trump partying with Epstein and a bunch of Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders in, in uh, Mar-a-Lago. Trump looks fucking weird. He's sweaty. He's horny looking. He's got like dyed black eyebrows. Like he was doing weird shit to his hair way back then, like in the 80s. I mean, his hair right. looks weird as fuck. Uh, like dark jet black hair dye in his eyebrows that he left in too long. It's really strange to watch. Right. But yeah, yeah let's no, go back stay, to our... Stay tuned for that. Yeah. So did you see Kellyanne Conway? I love, I love how insane she is. She was responding to a reporter and he was just like, you know, do you have any comment about Trump's racist tirade? And she's just like, what's your ethnicity? What's your ethnicity? Why is that relevant to the No, family? no, because I'm asking you a question. My, my ancestors my, are from my, Ireland and Italy. My, my own ethnicity is not relevant to the question I'm asking. No, no, it is, because asking you're asking you about, he said originally. He said originally from. I'm, I am, I'm asking and you know everything he has said what? since, and to have a full so are you, conversation. So are you saying that the president was telling uh, the Palestinian... The president's American already commented on that. Her husband, who I believe is half Filipino, wrote an editorial in the Washington Post four days ago 
saying Trump is a racist president. So her own husband is literally writing editorials for the Washington Post saying Trump is racist. I'm surprised she's still working for the administration after that. Me too. It's kind of like how Robert Kagan was writing like hit pieces against Obama while Victoria Newland was still working under him. And that was just sort of accepted. So this is not this is not like unprecedented where the spouse of uh, someone working for the president would be talking shit about them. It's a more heightened version of that. The title is just Trump is a racist president. Wow. That's pretty, you know, balls out. I can't imagine he was very pleased to see his wife acting that way to a pool of reporters, asking the guy immediately what his ethnicity was. I mean, <laughs> I hope that there's some kind of divorce proceedings coming up on their horizon. I really hope there is. Well, let's talk about what Elon Omar did in response to this, right? This is, you're talking about how she doubles down, how she's fighting back while America is calling her anti-Semitic. Um, she actually introduced a pro-BDS resolution into Congress, not specifically mentioning Israel or Palestine, but simply reaffirming Americans' right to boycott in general. Oh, that's um, great. Oh, I mean, that, that yeah. to me shows me that she is pretty fearless. And I don't want to sound like I'm unequivocally 100% behind everything she says. I mean, she's already tweeted some things that I disagree with and that I was really disappointed to see just since she's been in Congress. But I mean, as far as the most brave person in Congress so far, um, I definitely think she's fits that label. And that's pretty impressive to do that. I'm reading from the Electronic Intifada. This happened on Tuesday, July 16th. So she introduced this resolution. She also explicitly offered her support for BDS. Um, the resolution was introduced at the same time that the Democratic leadership in Congress is advancing a non-binding resolution to condemn BDS. That's what makes this way more powerful, you know, because this this was introduced co-sponsored by hundreds of Congress people, this anti-BDS measure. Hey, just jumping in here really quickly to add on to the podcast after we recorded, I just became aware that the House voted on that anti-BDS resolution yesterday. The bill was titled Opposing Efforts to Delegitimize the State of Israel and the Global Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement Targeting Israel. Now, this bill implies that BDS is, of course, anti-Semitic, and it affirms the U.S. government's commitment, quote, to a two-state solution while condemning BDS as a movement that promotes principles of collective guilt, mass punishment, and group isolation. So, surprisingly, Ayanna Presley, the woman that I've been, you know, praising as part of this progressive squad, I just found out that she has very, very bad foreign policy, um, especially when it comes to Israel. So she does not support Palestinian rights, and she actually voted alongside so-called progressives Ro Khanna and Tulsi Gabbard um, to actually condemn BDS. It is not progressive to embolden Trump's attacks and legitimize an apartheid state committing an ongoing massacre. So I'm not surprised, frankly, but yeah, I mean, at this point, you have nothing to lose. And anything that you do to embolden Trump and any measure or vote that is condemning Palestinian rights um, in the climate that we're living in, even though this was a non-binding resolution, Michael Oria, writing for Mondoise, mentions that critics believe that the political capital generated by the bill's passage will be used to pass much more aggressive anti-BDS measures in the future. 
Tamara Nasser from Electronic Intifada, you know, mentioned to me, she just said, you know, binding or not, this still creates a McCarthyite anti-Palestinian atmosphere and sets a dangerous precedent for creating even more dangerous legislation in the future. So, yeah, I'm going to take one issue at a time and I'm going to call out the people for what they do on these issues. It's time to start holding people accountable for their actions. With 330 co-sponsors, right? That's when she introduces this kind of pro-BDS resolution. When was the timing of this? Did the timing of this line up at all with her? Oh, so she did it on the 16th. So that was yeah, yeah. just a few this days ago. So it's like right in the middle of all this happening, she's yeah. doing this. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I love. Yeah, yep. And uh, I was actually impressed because... I thought it was a really smart thing that she did to just kind of reaffirm this right that actually the, the Supreme Court had already given us. Um, in 1982, the Supreme Court upheld that engaging in a, quote, nonviolent, politically motivated boycott is free speech protected by the First Amendment. So she, she went into it really smartly and proposed this to kind of just send a shockwave once again in the midst of all of this shit going on. One other really exciting thing about this, this pro-boycott measure, was that it had co-sponsors. Not only Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, obviously Palestinian woman who Trump you know, also hates, but John Lewis. John Lewis, um, a civil rights hero who's been kind of historically silent on Israel's uh, violence against Palestinians. So it was pretty amazing to see him step up to the plate. I think it's becoming more normalized and palatable, especially because polls are you know, showing a significant drop in support with Democratic voters. I wonder if the media is going to pick up on it and now call her anti-Semitic again for trying to pass this, even though she didn't even mention Israel. So it's interesting, this anti-Semitism charge that Trump keeps using towards her. The mainstream media has now, I believe, it seems like for the most part, moved past reinforcing that idea that she's anti-Semitic. Originally, they were sort of going after her for the Benjamins tweet, but now that they're in a position to defend her, it's interesting because this usually might even be a time where they would attack a congressperson for making a pro-BDS bill. But it's like they've already sort of put themselves in a corner where now if they do that, then they'll be propelling Trump's rhetoric to some degree. So I find that an interesting dynamic. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, I mean, that that could be why she's doing it. She's trying to capitalize on kind of the media momentum that's on her side right now. And it yeah. would kind of call out the hypocrisy of the mainstream media if they just all of a sudden shifted now to pro-Trump talking points. Yeah. You know, even while looking for clips, like I did a little bit of like clip digging, you know, very, very little for, for your film. And even when I was looking for clips of The Great March of Return, trying to find CNN and NBC like being really pro-Israel, I was actually surprised how the stance they took was not as pro-Israel as I expected. I mean, I guess that's the, the most I'll say on it because I can't say that it was anti-Israel, but it wasn't as like unequivocally pro-Israel as what we're used to seeing in the past from mainstream media networks. So that I do think that marks somewhat of a change, even if it's subtle. And not to say that their coverage is good. It's just interesting that it's like because Trump They're and more Netanyahu... Careful. They're more careful. They're more careful. And because Trump and Netanyahu are just, just you know, giving each other hand jobs constantly under the table, these networks, I think, are hesitant to prop up Netanyahu or Israel. Just for that reason alone. Just like they're hesitant now 
to praise Saudi Arabia or MBS. I think it's a similar thing happening. But I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard to exactly tell what's going on there. No, I mean, CNN, MSNBC had just Israeli spokespeople on just spewing complete nonsense, you know, and that that's a big part of our media montage in the documentary that you'll see is, you know, Fox, of course, is just vitriolic and disgusting and completely insane. Um, but but the counterparts, the liberal establishment wing of the media is definitely still allowing this kind of rhetoric to just go unchallenged, even though they're not maybe saying the same stuff that they did before. But to give some context to this BDS resolution is that at least 27 states already, over half of the country have passed anti-BDS measures. 27 wow. states have passed anti-BDS measures. That happened a lot faster than the medical marijuana uh, virility of, of spreading across <laughs> all these states. Wow, there must have been some serious lobbying efforts by the Israeli government to get that shit to pass that fast. I had no idea. That's incredible. 27 states, baby. Yeah, I thought we were honestly just talking about like Texas and maybe just yeah. a couple other states. I'm pretty blown away. Yeah, and they even tried, Well, and we should mention again, that Bill de Blasio... Who did he drop out, or is he still running? Oh no, he's in there. So the Bill De Blasio of New York tried to pass this as well. He did not succeed. So this could have been imposed on New York City. I mean, that's that's pretty wild too. I didn't know that you could just directly like violate a Supreme Court ruling like that. I mean, I guess that's what all these anti-abortion bills and legislations passing all across the country are doing, you know what I mean, to undermine Roe v. Wade. But like this seems like a direct violation of this 1982 ruling. It's, it's definitely almost like trying to challenge the law as we know it to the point where it'll require guaranteed if someone gets penalized or some kind of legal punishment for pushing BDS in one of these states they will have a Supreme Court case. Technically speaking, they should be able to get that case heard by the Supreme Court pretty easily, based on what you're saying. I mean, it completely violates the First Amendment. The abortion stuff might be a little more murky in that regard, but this seems really clear-cut to me, that this should immediately get to the Supreme Court if someone actually goes to jail or gets seriously fined for pushing right. BDS in one of these states. But I don't know. I mean... I'd like to believe that would be, you know, very easily get to the Supreme Court, but fuck, I, I don't know. I mean, this is crazy. This is happening at the same time that Jared Kushner is proposing his so-called peace plan, this uh, so-called deal of the century, peace to prosperity plan, um, where he just gave this batshit crazy speech in Bahrain to like a bunch of Arab leaders. The speech is insane because he basically is just saying that Palestinians haven't picked themselves up by their bootstraps. <laughs> like that's seriously what he insinuates in this speech. And he actually says, quote, prosperity is earned, not given to people. So just typical deflection, blaming the victim. Jesus Christ, Gaza has like one of the highest earned PhDs per capita, like in the world. You know, despite the humanitarian crisis that they're, that they're suffering, which is a manufactured crisis Unlike Yemen, Haiti, etc., this is a crisis that is happening because Israel is deciding to withhold basic services. You know, they're withholding water for 2.2 million people. That's manufactured. So it shows, you know, that they're all striving. They have hope for their future. They're all getting PhDs, you know? 
So it's just sick. It's sick what Jared Kushner is doing. Um, of course, the Palestinian leadership has boycotted this whole peace plan, peace to prosperity plan, because they're like, look, we already have said what we want. We want a two-state solution with the 1967 borders, and we don't even have a seat at the table. This is offensive. The elephant in the room was the occupation. We have to also understand in the context of all this happening is that you know, Trump immediately goes in there and cuts the $500 million a year in food aid and medicine to the most vulnerable poor Palestinians with UNRWA. $25 million per year was cut to funding hospitals that were already completely overstretched that were barely able to operate in East Jerusalem. Vital, vital funds to the most marginalized poor population, right? So to be told uh, arrogantly that, oh, you guys just don't want to get better, you guys just want to stay poor and helpless, huh? And don't forget that the destruction of the Iran deal is part and parcel with this deal of the century. Um, and just to give you guys a sense of how absurd this is, you know, for people who might be listening and they're like, oh, well, why don't Palestinians just accept the $50 billion? You know, what do they have to lose? Well, without lifting the occupation, it's really kind of, you know, nonsensical because according to Mondo Weiss, while the yearly costs of the occupation are difficult to quantify, a Jerusalem-based economist named Hadil Barndarni told Al Jazeera in 2016, quote, the conservative estimate is that the Palestinians are losing nearly $4 billion as a result of the occupation's exploitation. A 2013 report published by the World Bank estimated that just simply allowing Palestinians access to Area C, that would add another $2.2 billion a year to Palestinian GDP. So it's, you know, it's just more kind of rhetoric that's obfuscating the reality. Um, and that's why Palestinian leaders boycotted this shit. They were just like, this is fucking trash, dude. Um, and if the deal of the century were to succeed, Iran, this whole thing is centered around Iran being the new common enemy facing Arab regimes and Israel. And so that's why all these Gulf leaders were there in the audience. That's why they're invited to be a part of this, because they want to center their new hate and energy on Iran. And they want these Arab and Gulf states to be involved in this like faux prosperity plan. Because as we know, all of these Arab neighbors and leaderships have completely abandoned the Palestinians. And at this point, they just are trying to get normalized relations with Israel to benefit them. So that's where we're at in the Middle East, and that's what Jared Kushner is trying to do, all under the guise of lifting Palestinians up, you know, and giving them a chance to have like a better future, and of course, blaming them for their own misery. So let's break down where Democratic candidates for the 2020 election stand on Palestine Israel. So, as we've been mentioning, the consciousness is shifting. People around the world have woken up to this already. We have BDS resolutions already being passed in municipalities and actual governments like Ireland. All around the world, people are mobilizing in mass for Palestinian rights and also to join Palestinian rights into anti-war movements and mobilizations. So this is now accepting Palestinian statehood, Palestinian rights as part and parcel with anti-war activism. You know, 10 years ago or during the Iraq war, it was taboo to include Palestine, a free Palestine, um, into any sort of messaging about the Iraq war. But now you are not progressive if you do not support a free Palestine. So I think that that should give people inspiration and optimism for just how far we've shifted. 
that probably has a lot to do with just the incessant massacres being committed on this caged population, 2009, 2012, 2014, and of course the Great March of Return, which has really changed the conversation. It's shameful. It's shameful to go to Israel. You you kind of feel embarrassed. You know, you feel embarrassed if you're a progressive. It's getting harder to defend, especially with these shared shared interests from Netanyahu and the Trump administration and, uh, you know, settler colonial roots that they both share and this Islamophobic sentiment that, um, that they boast about. So it is getting more difficult for liberal Zionists to explain their position and just progressives in general to actually excuse what's going on there. Um, so let's get started, Robbie, because in response to the shift... Most of these candidates have made their positions on Israel and Palestine kind of more ambiguous, actually. You know, they have a lot of strong words about Netanyahu. They have a lot of strong words to condemn the, quote, right wing in Israel, kind of almost encapsulating like the problem as just Netanyahu, right? Just like people like point to the U.S. and they're like, Trump is the problem without really understanding U.S. imperialism, the structure of U.S. empire, et cetera. It's kind of the same thing. It's an easy cop out. And that's what you see with a lot of these candidates. Um, the New York Times did a big uh, video sit down with all some of the main contenders and asked them, do you think Israel meets international standards of human rights? And um, they show quick clips of everyone kind of commenting on this, this issue. Um, and it's just a, a ton of bullshit. You know, Kamala Harris says overall, yes. Pete Buttigieg says Israel's human rights record is moving in the wrong direction, which I thought was interesting. John Delaney says Israel's in a difficult situation. Amy Klobuchar says Israel does things that I think are against international policy, and I will call them out on it. It's like, oh, wow. Cory Booker says we have a problem with the way that we're debating issues surrounding Israel. What a fucking douche. Beto O'Rourke says I know Israel attempts to meet standards of human rights. They could do a better job. Elizabeth Warren says the current situation is not tenable. Bernie Sanders says... You know, the U.S. should work with everyone, including Palestinians. Julian Castro says Israel wants to do the right thing. Bill de Blasio says, you know, the Israeli government's made some mistakes. Tulsi Gabbard says, I think there are some challenges that need to be addressed. I'm not even going to mention, you know, John Hickenlooper, Seth Moulton. Who the fuck is that? Is he even running anymore? Yeah, Jesus. Um, Kristen Gillibrand says, yes, I do believe they're meeting human rights standards. Israel's our greatest ally. Andrew Yang says some of the actions being taken are problematic. Marianne Williamson says, I will have an equal commitment to both sides. Michael Bennett's trash. I'm not going to talk about him. Jay Inslee says, um, you know, I don't think that they're following the correct policies. And Eric Swalwell dropped out. So this is this is kind of the rhetoric that you're hearing from them. You know, a lot of kind of condemnation for Netanyahu. Why? Because it's safe to do so because they know how close Netanyahu is to Trump, right? So they're trying to posit themselves as like the anti-Trump Democrats. They know how much Democrats hate Trump. So I think that they're trying to distance themselves as far as possible away from Netanyahu and painting that as the, as the problem. So that's that's what kind of everyone like on a surface level really understands about these candidates. So Mike and I decided to really dig into these candidates' real records. You know, who are these people? What is their real positions on Israel-Palestine? I mean, pretty much every single one says they want a two-state solution. Of course. And that the right wing in Israel is the problem. And they all unequivocally agree on Israel's right to exist, 
Israel's right to security. So again, these are like platitudes, right? These are platitudes that obscure or avoid the reality of the situation. All ruling coalition parties in Israel officially oppose a Palestinian state, so basically a no-state solution, and they openly pledge to annex all remaining Palestinian land. All of these Democratic contenders, when they talk about a two-state solution, there is no two-state solution to be had when it comes to what Israeli politicians are saying. With the last election that happened, and I know Netanyahu's in the, in the midst of like forming this new coalition, he has a couple months to try to get more people on his side so then he can secure his leadership again. And a couple people are, who joined the cabinet recently are like extreme Hebronite settlers, like the most racist, genocidal maniacs are now, you know, have cabinet seats. So just to give you a sense of how warped our perception is of what's even going on over there. So let's dig in a little bit more to the main contenders and what their positions really are, because it's quite fascinating when you see all of them are pretty much terrible on this issue. And, a, and again, these people have nothing to lose. A lot of them are like polling almost zero to 1%. So they all front as progressives, as we mentioned on that podcast, Breaking Down the Debate. And Cory yeah. Booker pretends to care about trans rights. Well, they think Palestinians are fucking animals and vermin. So it's kind of hard to like understand how you can care so much about immigrants and people of color passing in that are seeking asylum, right? Escaping and fleeing genocide and violence and political persecution, but then have zero sympathy or empathy for Palestinians. I mean, that doesn't really make sense. Oh, it doesn't. And that's obviously all posturing. I mean, they would have never, Democrats from before the Trump era would have never acted this compassionate towards people trying to get into this country without going through the immigration process. It really is very disingenuous. Okay, let's just go over the front runners because, you know, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris were kind of these darlings, these so-called progressive darlings. They were the victors of these debates. They posed as super progressive, Bernie light, um, really strong, right? People of color, which is so fascinating considering their, their positions on Israel-Palestine. Cory Booker is considered one of the most pro-Israel Democrats in government, hands down. He is the only candidate to co-sponsor the anti-BDS Act, that legislation that we were just talking about. He's the only Democratic candidate that co-sponsored that act. He also says that he texts like teenagers with the president of APAC. I mean, aside from the fact that APAC is a horrific organization and the things that it does to, you know, suppress Palestinian rights and take over our government, what's crazy about that is like, why would you be comfortable saying that about any lobbying group? You text like teens with like the president of a lobbying organization that's highly influential on the Hill. That's super weird, right? It is weird, but it's it's obviously designed to send a signal to the people that would boost him up because of that, having APAC that strongly allied with him. It's so, so weird, but I think he's almost admitting it because he wants to send a signal to all those people to let them know how much he's in the bag for them. Right. Yeah. He also lobbied black congressmen proudly to not boycott Netanyahu's speech when Netanyahu himself came and gave a speech against Obama to our own government. Remember that shit? He lobbied black congressmen to please not boycott that. Very cool. 
And during the 2014 war, Cory Booker denounced Hamas. He has this crazy video of him on the House floor saying a bunch of crazy shit. He said, Hamas racks up casualties. Hmm, does that rhetoric sound familiar? That it's Hamas who's racking up casualties. Not the people who are actually killing the Palestinians, but Hamas. Because they love those telegenically dead Palestinians, Robbie. Just stack up the more dead, the better. According to Cory Booker. Seeing people in Israel live under the terror in the skies and terror coming from below. I want to stand resolute and clear about the true cause of this crisis. And that lies squarely with Hamas, a terrorist organization. They are in the interest of racking up casualties to add what they consider in a warped way, moral force for their terroristic aims. I believe clearly on the evidence that these, this terrorist organization is willing to stop at no ends in order to build their tunnels. At the time of this 2014 massacre, 2,200 Palestinians dead, 500 children, he was sponsoring $225 million of emergency military aid. Emergency military aid to give on top of the $10 million every day that Americans sponsor for Israeli apartheid. He really, really wanted them to get $225 million more aid, Robbie. Um, he also co-sponsored the resolution against Obama because you know how Obama um, refused to veto that UN resolution to condemn illegal settlements yeah. or whatever? So Obama refused to veto that. Everyone was up in arms. So, of course, the U.S. government and Congress initiated some bullshit resolution to condemn Obama for, like, not vetoing the U.N. And so he co-sponsored that. He co-sponsored that bill. Do you know who he co-sponsored um, it with? Him and Kamala. Fascinating. Him and Kamala. And yeah. I don't know if this is in your notes because I lost track. of. So he was invited to Rabbi Shmuley's award gala along with Tulsi Gabbard. They were the only two people from the entire current pool of Democrats who were invited in 2016 to his Jewish Value Award gala. So that's interesting that at the time he thought that him him and Tulsi Gabbard were both like two of the strongest sitting pro-Israel politicians that he would want to include in that. Very, very weird. Yeah, he also goes on to say some really crazy shit, dude. He says there's, quote, no greater moral vandalism than dividing support for Israel. And he'd rather, quote, cut off his right hand than abandon Israel. Oh, Imagine cool. saying that. What type of psychopath do you need to be to say that? That's amazing. I mean, this actually helps explain why he was the only person who said that he would want to, like, do a stronger... Iran deal and he didn't remember he was one of the only people who mm -hmm, differed from mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. rest of the people at the last debate on that yep that's yep. a deal pretty of the century, pathetic baby. very obvious deal of the why. century dude <laughs> yeah he also was recently approached I think by progressive Jewish activists um, and he's pretty much said if this is your issue don't support me just straight up well at least he's putting it out there yeah. He's, he's leaving no right. ambiguity in that area. I mean, so right. you got to give him credit for that. Yep. Yeah, at least he's being more frank as opposed to like Pete Buttigieg and all these other assholes who are just like totally obscuring what their real views are and pretending like they actually are condemning Israel. So let's move on to Kamala Harris. She's a regular APAC speaker. 
She had an off-the-record APAC speech in 2018 because, of course, it's getting a little bit, you know, more taboo and you have to kind of explain yourself more. If you're giving just open speeches to APAC as a so-called progressive, she co-sponsored that resolution against Obama alongside Cory Booker. She also compared pro-Israel activism to the civil rights struggle. In one of these speeches, she gives this big tribute to Selma and the civil rights struggle and actually likens it to Israel. Imagine. Imagine doing that. Great. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. She's been called more APAC than J Street. Um, her campaign director says, quote, her support for Israel is central to who she is. She calls BDS anti-Semitic. And unlike other senators who are kind of making a demand for Palestinian rights, she makes no demands and she's saying nothing about Palestinian rights whatsoever. Zero. Fascinating. Well, this makes me wonder where her and like her and Cory Booker being the only black candidates in this this whole list we're going to read. Um, I wonder where they are on Ilhan Omar and Trump's uh, racist rhetoric against Ilhan Omar and the, and the other three. So let's move on to Pete Buttigieg, a so-called progressive who everyone was blown away by, some podunk fucking mayor who had that viral tweet thread about him using semi-automatic weapons where they belong on the streets of Afghanistan. Not in this country, Robbie. So he's a former intelligence officer, which is already sketchy. Um, so where is he at? Well, he joined an Israel delegation at the height of the massacre. <laughs> he praised Israel's security as moving days after snipers killed 60 unarmed marchers at the fence. And he also called Israel a, quote, model for U.S. domestic security. Of course, he also blames the violence and misery in Gaza on Hamas. Um, he says he won't reverse Trump's embassy move. He says, quote, what's done is done. That's not a very good fucking plan. He's also been endorsed by the former APAC president, which should really um, be a red flag to anyone. But to go on and explain the full quote um, in this weird interview he gave right after coming back from Israel, you know, in the height of this Great March of Return massacre, he says, quote, I was in a very modern city surrounded by people going about their lives. Seeing how people fit these things together was illuminating, in many ways moving. There's a sense that no matter what challenges there are in the community or society, they can't wait for security issues to be resolved. People live their lives. They're pretty clear-eyed about what's going on around them. Hmm. And at the same time, you don't let that take over. The sense that we were in a very safe and peaceful place. You know, we get a lot more nuanced idea of what's happening on the Palestinian side. So one of the first things that was very clear to us was the extent to which there's not really a unified or single voice for Palestinians. Most people aren't aware of the difference between what's happening in Gaza run by Hamas in a way that's contributing to a lot of the misery there, but also is totally different from an environment where you would have a negotiating partner across the table. I don't think that's widely understood. And I think if you were to see more Democrats be asking more questions as we face these kind of 90-second cable news version clips of what's going on there. What so the that, that sums his whole position up in a nutshell. Jesus Loves Christ. the security situation, feels protected by this apartheid wall, thinks the security is moving, and also clearly said that it's Palestinians who are refusing to come to the table, right? They're not um, fair negotiating partners. Hamas is causing the misery in Gaza. And he said, you know, when we're watching the news, he's actually insinuating that like the bias is pro-Palestinian. <laughs> Did you get that from his quote? He's just like, you know, you really don't understand how Palestinians aren't really a fair peace negotiators if you're just watching these sound bites from the media. 
having the audacity to say that like Israel's unfairly represented in the media. Holy shit. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah. So Senator Warren, um, she's, you know, she has a lot of strong words for Netanyahu today. She has said some things about Palestinian rights, but she's called a surprising Israel hawk by Forward Magazine. Um, a surprising Israel hawk based on her voting record and her past. So again, she, even though she has strong words of condemnation, she has not actually illustrated what her peace plan would be, what the policy would be, what a two-state solution looks like for her. Um, during the 2014 Gaza War, she defended the $225 million in emergency aid. She also co-sponsored the U.S.-Israel Strategic Partnership Act, which provided more weapons to Israel during the 2014 war. That's insane. She has a really embarrassing video that we can play a clip from if we want to that blames civilian casualties on Hamas and where she says Israel's in a really tough neighborhood. Um, what do you mean she, she has, has a video like from her, was it was it on the did she go on the media and say this or was it No, just it was like some it was like some yeah, it was like a video she produced what? in 2014 like supporting Israel during the Gaza war. That's that says a lot. I think when a politician does their own like video statement I mean, that's that's above and beyond. If she had sent something on the media, that would be not as bad. So that's right. I think that really does say something about her. Absolutely. And it says something that she'll boycott APAC proper, right? Like in D.C., she doesn't go to the annual APAC convention anymore, but she attends anymore. local APAC dinners. Yeah, she attends local APAC dinners in Boston. So what's the difference? Well, she wants to have her cake and eat it, too, obviously. She doesn't want to yeah. go there. And maybe they've allowed her to have a, a line to them, and they understand that she it would look bad for her to go there. It's mutually beneficial still for them. So, yeah, it's very underhanded, and it's it's really disgusting, actually. Yeah, and I will say that every single Democratic candidate opposes BDS. Every single candidate opposes BDS. So that's an important. What do you thing mean? To- even Talk Bernie? About. Yeah, they all oppose. They all say like, "I don't support BDS, but I will oppose anti-BDS laws." Okay. So you've had a couple people come out, like Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, have said, "We oppose anti-BDS legislation." Got it. But okay. no one will go as far as saying they support BDS. I think Mike Gravel has maybe said that. Um, but yeah, so so Warren opposes anti-BDS laws, but opposes BDS, right? So of the Great March of Return massacre, this is as far as she went. You would think that, you know, the most egregious massacre of unarmed protesters in modern history would have a little bit more strong language to condemn the Israeli military. But instead, as far as she went was this. She said, Israel has a right to defend itself, but must exercise restraint. It's just... Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Israel has a right to defend itself. From who? I mean, it's just a really, really wishy-washy, non... Nonsense. What does that even amount yeah, to? Yeah, Ahmed, Ahmed Artema, the guy who like started the march, he's this Palestinian poet, and he was just saying, you know, all these like Westerners and Americans always say, like, why, why don't you just be peaceful? Like, he was like, we are. He said, he said, they always say, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? And he said, well, two hundred of them have been killed at the fence. Mm-hmm. We've had two hundred Palestinian Gandhis. Still not good enough for you people. Yeah, it's like, do people not understand that, that that all this stuff is exaggerated and pinpointed to make it seem representative of all the Palestinian people? Like if one or, you know, a few rockets go off 
from some Hamas fighters in in the Palestinian territory. Well, it's ingenious. I mean, it's a, you have to admire the ingenuity of basically blaming a people for their own oppression. How else can you defend 2.2 million people living without water? How yeah, you have you to say that? they're all and human shields. You have to, right? Yeah. What Michael right. Reagan said in the mid '90s on his own radio show, where now the clip is actually stricken from the internet. I think he hired people to actually delete this from the internet because it was so bad. The Ronald Reagan family, the Reagan family legacy, did not want this shit online. And basically, Michael Reagan, his adopted son, says that we should put bombs inside the buttholes of Palestinian children, toddlers, and blow them up because they're just going to blow themselves up anyways. So we should literally murder them by putting explosives inside their buttholes. Said this on an AM radio, right-wing talk radio show in the 1990s. What a psychotic monster. Yeah. That's how I'll remember the Reagan legacy forever, honestly. Good. Yeah. And I, and I actually am determined to find this clip uh, so I can re-upload it online. I, I really think this needs to be on the internet for everybody to remember. Let's move on to Joe Biden. Um, he, even though he's Christian, he's very proud Zionist. He has said that over and over again. You do not need to be Jewish to be a Zionist. We get it, dude. He brags all the time about how his administration with Obama set a record-setting $38 billion military aid package to Israel. Um, as we know, it was the largest aid, aid package ever secured. And so he brags of like being, you know, driving that home. Do you have any idea when, what year that was? No, I forget. That I was? forget. I, I no, didn't I realize forget. that, that that was a, a record setting deal. Yeah. And let's just, um, let's just also say, mention like, I, just so people don't mistake what I was saying earlier for any sort of praise for the Obama administration, the moves that Obama made to go against Netanyahu were very, very passive just merely ignoring and pretending like Netanyahu coming to Congress wasn't even happening. Right. That's how the Obama administration treated that. Um, the Obama administration also abstained from the vote on the settlement condemnation instead of voting against it. And that was considered very controversial at the time. Do you remember? Not voting. No, not vetoing it. That's what I mean. Not, not vetoing it. So they abstained from vetoing it. And that was a huge deal. Even though that's just a passive movement. That's not like the Obama administration voting for a resolution to condemn something. No, of course not. I mean, and let's get this out of the way. Joe Biden being President Obama's, you know, second in command, they openly supported these U.S.-backed Israeli massacres in 2009, 2012, and 2014. And don't forget the IDF attack on the Gaza flotilla that killed 10 people. 10 peace activists were mowed down by commandos helicoptering on this fucking ship trying to provide life-saving aid to Gaza and killed them. And he said, quote, he spent a lot of time going to the UN directly to defend the flotilla attack, Robbie, making sure one thing was clear, he said, that Israel had the right, had the right to impose that blockade. Jesus Can you imagine bragging about that? No. (laughs) So he also has a 100% rating from APAC. He's called BDS anti-Semitic. So Amy Klobuchar, Times of Israel, has called her the candidate most closely aligned with APAC. She was their featured 2018 speaker. Um, She's pledged to uphold Trump's embassy move, and she voted for the anti-BDS legislation. So this is the woman who's, again, posing as a progressive. She's a total fucking fake. 
Moving on to Bill de Blasio, he says, you know, he's really staunchly pro-Israel. He says defending Israel is a matter of being consistent with progressive values. Actually, it's the opposite, Bill. He deeply opposes BDS. On a recent visit to Israel, in the height of this Great March of Return stuff, he condemned Palestinians and hung out with Netanyahu. He's also attacked Omar for criticizing Israel. So, great job, dude. Really big ally to progressives. Really appreciate you. Um, Beto O'Rourke needs to clarify his current position. He's, he's another one of these guys that you don't really know where he stands, you know, other than just kind of this baseless rhetoric. Um, he was attacked by APAC for not voting for that extra emergency aid in 2014. They literally like called him like a Hamas sympathizer <laughs> because he just wouldn't vote for the extra $300 million. <laughs> um, but then on the other hand, he's been paid nearly 200 grand by J Street, another lobbying firm. But he's also been praised by certain members of Israeli lobbies for a strong record of support. So we don't actually know where he stands today. He has not made that clear. Um, and the same with Julian Castro. You know, this is another kind of boring former Obama administration member from HUD who not only is he just such a fucking bore. I just tried to watch this interview of him on Democracy Now! And I was just like, why are you running, dude? Um, he needs to clarify his position too. You know, here he is on the debate saying it just needs to be a civil offense for immigrants to cross the border. But then he says, Chi we need to deal with China. Right. Um, so, so in 2011, he led a delegation to Israel. So I understand that that was a long time ago. A lot can change. Um, he's also pledged to stand for a strong Israel to ensure that Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. I feel like everyone says that him alongside Warren have condemned um, Netanyahu's plan to annex the West Bank. So yeah, it's like we don't know where he stands, you know. Same with Andrew Yang, um, another guy who said we need to go after Russia in the debates. Someone, you know, he has this Yang gang kind of cult following on social media. But, you know, I think that if people really knew his foreign policy, it wouldn't be as attractive. Again, this is a guy who has like nothing to lose, right? Um, him and like Jay Inslee and Tulsi Gabbard, they have nothing to lose. Why aren't they going out further? I'm not even really familiar with his foreign policy stuff. Like that's what, what I'm is, saying. What is it? I mean, be, be just outside of Israel. Well, that's what I'm saying is that he's not making it clear. And all we knew at the debate was that he said we, Russia's, you know, we need to go after Russia. For sure. Yeah. But I mean, does he, you know, I wonder if he even has any just like straightforward campaign positions on like Syria no. and Iran on his no, no, website. No, 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 no. And he has a lot of stuff broken down on his website, but like the foreign policy is kind of a glaring omission there. He just has very few ambiguous statements that need clarification. Like he says, you know, on the New York Times thing that I cited, he says some of the actions are problematic. But then he says in response to someone asking, like, would you reduce military aid? He says, why would, we, why would we reduce military aid? He said, there's certain relationships we need to strengthen. Our relationship to Israel is one of them. So that's not good. Um, another woman who's pretending to be progressive, Bernie Light, Shill, Senator Gillibrand, Kristen Gillibrand, she boasts that she's actually, quote, one of the strongest and most consistent supporters of Israel in the Senate. In 2014, she partnered with Ted Cruz on a resolution blaming the Gaza massacre on Hamas human shields. She urged $622 million in emergency aid. She wasn't just satisfied with that $225 million. She wanted almost a billion dollars in aid because of all those human shields that were committing a massacre against themselves. Um, she was an original sponsor of the anti-BDS legislation, but she withdrew that sponsorship after like huge outcry 
because people were just like, what are you doing? Like, it's 2019. Why are you sponsoring this and pretending to be progressive? So she withdrew support, but then to like double down on how pro-Israel she was, she wrote this giant op-ed in Forward Magazine about why she, quote, vehemently opposes BDS as a, quote, pernicious vehicle for anti-Semitism. She also co-sponsored that resolution against Obama alongside Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. So moving on to Marianne Williamson, you know, similarly to how just like wonky some of her rhetoric and positions are, she kind of has a similar position on Israel-Palestine. You know, she has said some good things. She said that she would reverse the recognition of Golan Heights. She's condemned the Jerusalem you know, embassy move, she she says, quote, her love for Israel is second to her love for only the U.S. And she says, quote, the mortal mind alone cannot devise an answer to the conflict. Not really helpful, Marianne. <laughs> so let's um, so let's uh, let's close. Are you out sure she with- doesn't have any better uh, positions than that? She said that she will uh, commit equally to both sides. So she has said like she fully condemns Netanyahu. She thinks he's racist and she doesn't like the right wing. But again, like that's what everyone says, as I explained in the beginning. So no, she doesn't have anything that like clearly explains something better for Palestine. Well, yeah, I just want to leave that open to our listeners. Like if you if you know of anything she said, only I'm only saying this because I after watching that clip of her with Dave Rubin, I was really surprised how coherent and like uh, articulate she was on the issue of slavery. So it'd be interesting if there's anything else out there where she's talked about Palestine in depth. I'm totally open to changing this and I will report anything that, you know, I'm corrected on or if there's any updated policy positions, I'm absolutely open to that. Jay Inslee is another one who needs to clarify where he currently stands because in 2010 he, you know, called on Obama actually to ease the blockade of Gaza. That's a big deal. Um, But he also signed the governor's United Against BDS letter in 2017. So we don't know where he stands today. Mike Gravel said that he has a near-perfect pro-Israel voting record while he was in the Senate, which shows you kind of the pressure, even if he was pro-Palestine, he still voted nearly every time to align himself with Israel. His campaign today unequivocally endorses the one-state solution, a call to end apartheid. He says, quote, the two-state solution is dead and we have killed it, so why keep up the charade? Um, Says APAC should register as a foreign lobby and calls to end all military aid. So now let's close this out by talking about you know, Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders, because um, Tulsi Gabbard is painted as the anti-war candidate. Bernie Sanders, you know, people like to throw him under the bus as not being as good as Tulsi on war, right? So I was actually coming in this with an open mind on this issue, and I'll explain why. But first, let's get into Tulsi. Um, I think that she needs to clarify where she stands now. She's trying to play all sides. Recently, She's denounced the use of live ammunition against Gaza protesters. She said Israel needs to stop using live ammunition. Okay. So she also, when pointedly asked at a campaign event, would you reinstate funding for UNRWA? She said yes. And when she was asked on the Young Turks, do you support the occupation? She said whose occupation? And then when Jenk clarified, like, you know, the Israeli occupation, she said, I don't support that or something. She just gave like a one word response. Let's just focus on that particular interview for a second, because it's it's so recent. It's from 2019. I think it might even be from March. 
So it's from fairly recently. When Tulsi Gabbard was being interviewed by Cenk Uger, she also wiggled out of another question about her past strange ties to Israel or Israeli lobbying groups. Cenk asked her about the picture where she appeared with Miriam Adelson and Rabbi Shmuley. And for some reason, Cenk only asked about the picture and asked if she was also hung out with uh, Sheldon Adelson there. She says no. And he's like, well, yeah, like anyone could just pull out a picture and the picture doesn't really mean anything. But are you sure you didn't meet up with Sheldon Adelson there? And she's like, no. What Cenk didn't address was that she was actually receiving an award at this Jewish Values Award gala um, hosted by Rabbi Shmuley in 2016, where Sheldon Adelson and Miriam Adelson also both won awards and both spoke on stage, on the same stage as Tulsi Gabbard. Now, it turns out that there actually is a photograph of Sheldon Adelson with Tulsi Gabbard on stage together at this event. So I don't know if she was straight up lying to Chank when she said she didn't meet Sheldon Adelson there and that the photograph with Miriam Adelson was incidental. But what Chank didn't mention and what she didn't mention is that she was receiving an award along with Sheldon Adelson, along with Sean Penn, along with Cory Booker, all at this Jewish awards gala. It wasn't just like Jewish people. It was like pro-Israel, pro-Zionist awards being given out. Yeah, no, Rabbi Shmuley called it the who's who of yeah. Defenders of Israel gala. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. In 2016, to receive an award by Rabbi Shmuley, and he also just praised her for, you know, doing a good job at the debate. He tweeted saying, she's, she's my friend. So, yeah, I want to know, I want, I'm interested to know what these people found attractive about her, because I think this is a little bit more mysterious, because, you know, we can go over Warren, we could talk about, you know, these people having these contradictory, wishy-washy positions on Israel, but I think examining this Tulsi Gabbard thing is more interesting because she's representing herself as anti-war. These other people aren't necessarily doing that. So... What was it about her back in 2016 that someone like Rabbi Shmuley found attractive? Because not a lot of sitting politicians got awards here. Only Ed Royce got an award, Representative Ed Royce. I think Cory Booker's somewhere on this list. But that's it. So what was it about her that was attractive to them? And I think that question's worth examining. And I would argue that what's attractive to them about her was that she attacked the Obama administration from the right, from a sort of a more Zionist position of saying that Obama and Kerry need to start using the term radical Islamic terrorism. That's the only thing I can think of that to me would have made them like really want to give her some kind of award because by being a Democrat, she's like helping move the needle and like trying to influence the landscape. And I think to someone like Rabbi Shmuley and what his organization is behind, that's very important to them to try to do that, to try to move the needle on like radical Islamic terrorism. I don't know. What do you think? About absolutely. That? No, absolutely. She, she also co-sponsored two separate bills in 2014, pledging support for Israeli self-defense and extra military aid. So I think that, you know, her voting record clearly shows that she was willing to go above and beyond a lot of Democrats to introduce more military aid for Israel in the height of this war. So, and the speech at the Christians United for Israel, I mean, she gave a speech along, alongside Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, and Mike Huckabee. And Netanyahu. At this event. And the speech itself 
is worth looking back at because in it, she spends about a minute praising Senator Daniel Inouye about his dedication to Israel. And I'll just read to you a section from her speech. And keep in mind, this is not just a pro-Israel gala, like the Rabbi Shmuley event, which is bad enough that Sheldon Adelson was given an award there. This is Christian evangelicals united for Israel. Here's what she said. Learning from the example set by one of Hawaii's senators, the late Senator Daniel Inouye, he's a lifelong champion for Israel. He was instrumental in ensuring that American military aid to Israel was transformed from loans to grants, assured that Israel could purchase the most advanced American weapon systems and develop such systems of its own, and led the U.S. support for multi-layered missile defense in Israel, something that, as all of you know, saves people's lives every single day. Shortly after he passed away in December of 2012, Israel chose to name an Israeli military missile facility after Senator Inouye, the very first time ever in history and honor has bestowed, been bestowed on a non-Israeli. The fact that she goes to such great lengths talking about the Israel weapons that are used to just murder and obliterate the Palestinian people, like it's an honor to have a, a missile factory in Israel be named after you, that's pretty wild for someone running as an anti-war candidate. So what do you, how do you feel, Abby? You want to I read mean, some more quotes <laughs> from her or do you want to move on to Bernie? I mean, sure. Anything else that's, that's specific about Israel, yeah. Because when I put this thread out there, it was really shocking to see like the majority of people who were upset were Tulsi Gabbard supporters who thought that I was being disingenuous representing her position on Palestine-Israel. And a lot of them just said, you did this to make Bernie look better. And I was like, I did this because I'm explaining every single candidate's position. It's not a Tulsi versus Bernie. Mm -hmm. The truth is biased in favor of Bernie just simply because he has a better position than Tulsi. Like that, that's the facts here. But people were like really, really upset. Not only a better current position, but also just a more provable, consistent record. And look, even on the issue of Palestine and Israel, like, He's still got a lot of problems. He's definitely the best candidate out of this pool of candidates. And what was so weird is people were saying, oh, well, she's actually answered these questions. How come you're not including this? And they kept posting this video over and over again of her, like I said, being asked, would you reinstate funding for UNRWA? Would you support like anti-BDS legislation and something else? And she just like answered yes or no questions. She was just like, yes, no. And it's like, that is not explaining anything. There were some people who were being very extremely disingenuous, posting like just complete falsehoods to try to pretend like Tulsi was actually good on Palestine. I was just like, this is so weird. Why are you guys lying? Like, if anything, this should inspire you to pressure her, to clarify her current position. You know, what is the two-state solution to her? What would, what would it mean to hold Israel accountable for war crimes? Oh, that was the third question that someone asked her. They're like, would you hold Israel accountable? And then she just goes off on this kind of rant that just says nothing again. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get very much honesty from the people who are, like, the people who have changed their avatars to be pictures of her with the hashtag Tulsi2020 in their bio. You're not going to convince any of those people. They'll just keep sending you the same clips. They'll keep dodging the argument about why did she have such a bizarre position on torture in 2014. 
by sending me clips from, you know, like, for example, you said that all she gave was one word answers to that. On the Jimmy right. Dore show, she was asked, and this is all she was asked about that video. You are against torture. Yes, Tulsi says. In all circumstances, yes. And people just kept sending me this section from that episode of the Jimmy Dore show over and over again as a response to me asking how she evolved her position on torture in only four years from originally believing in a Dick Cheney ticking time bomb scenario. And that doesn't answer the question at all. That's just her really quickly getting past this and taking the right position on torture now. The 2015 speech at the Christians United for Israel conference, like that's a big deal. Receiving an award for Rabbi Shmuley in 2016, that's a big deal. What changed? That's what I want to know. And that's, and that's the point that I'll bring up again. I want to know what Tulsi's evolution was. And that hasn't been explained to me really no. on these really important things. And I'm not holding her to a higher standard in this regard. I think that she took quite extreme contrary positions to the one she has now back only five years ago. So I want to know what changed so much. I'm not convinced. I need to have further explanation about what the position really is. And kind of an explanation about how she changed her position, like you're saying. So let's move on. Bernie, you know, he, he voted for funding for Israel. You know, he's voted for funding for Israel for a long, long time. He also signed a letter that actually every single senator in the Senate signed accusing the UN of anti-Israel bias. Amazing. He was bad in 2014 during the war. Um, he, you know, he, he said that he supported Israel during the war. He was even confronted about BDS from some Palestinian woman on like an Al Jazeera interview and shut her down. So we're giving an honest assessment here. Um, this is just the facts, right? So where does Bernie stand today? When I say he has a record of support for Palestinian rights, I mean that he has said more than any other Democratic contender, potentially more than anyone else in Congress, other than like Elon Omar and maybe Rashida. But I mean, you have to give him like his 40-year track record and take that into account. He even proposed like back in the 90s withholding military aid for Israel um, until they froze settlements. So he was always questioning this, even though he, you know, at the same time he was helping fund it, just like Mike Gravel, I guess. Um, but when I say he has a record of support, I do mean that like, you know, rhetorically, he has said way more than anyone to support Palestinian rights. Um, just in the last year, I found five tweets or so just about Gaza this is a staggering death toll, over 50 killed in Gaza today. Um, of course, he has to say, you know, Hamas violence does not justify Israel firing on unarmed protesters. He also oh, says God, the killing yeah. of I remember I being know, really right? cringe when he mm -hmm. said that. Everybody equivocates in this way, and, it's, and it is disgusting. We're not saying Bernie Sanders is great on this issue. It's just that he is better than everybody else. So, yeah, he also said the killing of Palestinian demonstrators is tragic. It's, it's the right of all people to protest for a better future without a violent response. Um, he says the voices of Palestinians are rarely heard. This is what life is like for those who are living in Gaza under a 10-year blockade. But here's what's really crazy. Um, he recently took a photo with progressive Jewish activists holding a sign that says Jews against the occupation. Jews against the occupation. Um, he goes farther than anyone else as well by saying and clarifying what his two-state solution would be. He says that Israel must end its, quote, crushing military occupation and siege of Gaza, 
He's threatened to end aid over the settlement process. And in terms of the two-state solution, he actually agrees with Hamas, shockingly enough. He wants to withdraw settlements to the 1967 borders. Um, I'm going to read you two quotes from him. Um, And he says, you know, the truth is that the parameters of the solution are well known. They're based in international law. They're based in multiple UN Security Council resolutions, and they're supported by an overwhelmingly international consensus. Two states based on the 1967 lines. Unbelievable. Can you imagine what that would do? If we actually had a Democratic candidate for president, and if he won, that he actually is talking about withdrawing settlements back to the 1967 borders. That is truly shocking. That is literally what Hamas's charter says today. <laughs> that is- you know, for all this talk about justifying this ongoing massacre and saying Hamas wants to kill Jews and these people are trying to go over and commit a massacre against Jewish people, Hamas's own charter says, quote, Hamas considers the establishment of a fully sovereign and independent Palestinian state along the pre-military occupation lines of 1967 to be a formula of national consensus. Done. Peace done. Unbelievable. No one else has come out and said this. That's pretty strong, yeah. The U.S. ambassador from Israel, um, Mark Ginsburg, um, and I just found this on Wikipedia, said once that Bernie Sanders, quote, has never really extolled his Jewishness, much less any support for Israel. So he's like simultaneously basically saying that he's a self-hating Jew who doesn't support Israel. And and he's never has. Unbelievable. One other thing that I remembered, and I wanted to mention this before I forgot to, because for people who I know who are going to come out and say we're being too harsh on Tulsi again and too praising of Bernie Sanders, there was a video clip circulating from one of his town hall events in 2014 where he was asked about the ongoing siege happening in Gaza where Israel was killing like hundreds of civilians every day. So at the town hall meeting, Bernie started to answer a question about the conflict. He used the word that Israel had overreacted. And then he also said, but Hamas was also firing missiles into populated areas in Israel. And like a bunch of people in the audience in the town hall started to like yell. Hamas is sending missiles into Israel. Okay. And you know where some of those missiles are coming from? They're coming from population, populated areas. That's a fact. Hamas has used money that came into Gaza for construction purposes, and God knows they need roads and all the things that they need, and used some of that money to build these very sophisticated tunnels into Israel for military purposes. Okay, one, one second. Yes, no, I don't want to be interrupted. The question was asked. It's a bad question. And I'm trying to... Okay, Israel has a right to exist. If you don't... Yes, they do. You know, Gaza is like... Excuse me. Shut up. You don't have the microphone. You've asked... You know, like, I want police officers here. You're going to arrest people? No, I'm not going to arrest people. But are you going to allow us... Are you going to allow us to have a discussion? So it's interesting that he's gotten into, like, some of, you know, confrontations with people who are more to the left than he is... Uh, before. This is one of the only moments that I can remember where this happened. That's what I meant when I said he was really bad in 2014 and he like shut down people. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was bad. That was very, very bad. Yeah. But the thing is, where is everyone at today? But yeah, I mean, he also just has really strong words about ending the military occupation. 
you know, the non-starter of this peace process, like it all is about the military occupation. He says, quote, I see a Palestinian people crushed under a military occupation now over half a century old, creating a daily reality of pain, humiliation and resentment. Peace cannot be achieved in that region while, you know, he goes on to just cite all of the crazy statistics. This is not sustainable. Ending that occupation, enabling Palestinians to have independence and self-determination in a sovereign, independent, economically viable state of their own is in the best interest of the U.S., Israel, Palestinians, and the entire region. So still not like very strong, but way stronger than anyone else. Elizabeth Warren was confronted by progressive Jewish activists as well about will you work to end the military occupation? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's as good as we've gotten from Elizabeth Warren. She's, she's so... Yes or no answers. Um, you know, you'll cut off your right hand for Israel. That's not satisfying, nor should it be, to anyone who supports these people. We need to pressure these people to clarify their positions and actually understand how serious this issue is. So, yeah, everyone's been horrible on this issue. Bernie Sanders was bad in 2014. But what he's saying today is pretty amazing. And I was pretty blown away to see how far he actually is going. And I'm hoping that he understands that he has nothing to lose. And that's the thing about Tulsi, too. It's like she has nothing to lose. She's positing herself as the anti-war candidate. Why isn't she saying more stuff about Palestine? She should be going out there and actually outlefting Bernie on this issue. Yeah, that's what I would think, too. You would think that that's what she'd be doing. But she seems to have a very clear vision in in a certain regard to, like, what she wants, what kind of rhetoric she wants to put out there. So I don't see her coming out any further on, like, the anti-imperialist sort of left anti-war side anytime soon. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't see it happening. I know that there are other less popular Democratic candidates. They have really generic views on Israel. They're not really worth discussing. They're not really even claiming to be progressive. I mean, a lot of these people are just kind of Republicans dressed up in Democratic garb. Um, and, you know, all of these candidates don't have a good record. Some clearly better than others. One thing that they all have in common is that nothing will ever change unless there's an actual mobilized movement um, pushing BDS, pushing Palestinian rights, pushing the needle to confront U.S. empire and impunity for its colonial client states. It all starts here. It all starts with trying to mobilize the masses into trying to actually generate an anti-war movement. And that's the only way that we're going to push BDS. Without grassroots pressure from a mass movement to free Palestine, nothing will change on a national level. That's what all the Palestinians have asked us to do. They've asked us to please culturally isolate and boycott Israel, similar to South Africa. So that's why this, this debate is going on. That's why you see this vehement hatred for Elon Omar. That's why you see you know, Chuck Schumer's first initiative during the government shutdown was actually to try to pass an anti-BDS measure. Like, they're very focused on this because they know how big of a threat this is. And they know where the consciousness is shifting. Um, and it's very exciting. And I'm very optimistic about where we're headed. And um, just the fact that all these people ha- feel like they have to like condemn Netanyahu, I think, is a start as well. Yeah. But people are waking up and they're not buying it anymore. You know? Yeah. And I think this is, it's like we can almost see this. You know, and usually I'm really pessimistic about things on this podcast, but I think in this specific area, in terms of the public perception of Israel and the occupation, the needle does seem to be moving in a much more positive direction. A lot more people are aware of it. 
And I think that this is one of those examples that actually runs counter to the Russiagate example, complete inverse of it. So where that was something that the mainstream media establishment is, and like even people like, um, you know, generic Democrats piggybacked on the Russia hysteria because they hated Trump and wanted to make him look bad. And a lot of the people now who are going against Israel and Netanyahu are also doing it because they're horrified about Trump and they want to make him look bad. Like they don't want to be, they don't want to associate their own former support for Israel, I guess, with the Trump Netanyahu alliance. So even people like Sarah Silverman are now like going against Netanyahu and like tweeting things about how it's not anti-Semitism when like Ilhan Omar talks about uh, Israel and stuff like that. So that's surprising to see. I mean, she was basically putting on a Hasbro during the, uh, the Great March of Return. So that wasn't that long ago. So it's surprising to see things moving in this direction. Um, I'm excited to see where it goes. And I think Palestinians are, are really optimistic about where the struggle is going. And, and they have faith that, you know, the world can mobilize to isolate Israel and to force some sort of accountability and to try them in international courts and to actually implement a democratic one-state solution where everyone has equal rights. No, we're not talking about expelling Jews. We're talking about dissolving um, the occupation, the siege, and the apartheid regime and having an equal state. You know, you shouldn't base this kind of irrational fear on Palestinians having equal rights to justify an ongoing slaughter. It just doesn't make any sense. So we need to really um, educate people on what the reality is. And I advise people to go to Empire Files, check out our body of work on Palestine, and also to check out GazaFightsForFreedom.com and check out our film. And I think that um, it's really going to push the needle and, and it's really irrefutable at this point what's going on. And you really have to pick a side. You know, you're, you're either on the right side of history or you're not. I hope that all of you will join me on the right side of history and to join the fight, reach out to your local communities, Muslim, Arab communities, who are, you know, pushing BDS resolutions, who are trying to formulate um, strategies to try to push this forward. So get involved. Get involved and ask your communities what you can do to help, aside from obviously correcting the record online and, and kind of fighting back against this Hasbro machine. So thank you for listening to another extended episode of Media Roots Radio. I hope this was informative for you, and I hope it instructed you on how insane uh, the Democratic contenders are. And how full of shit they are. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for doing all that research on that. And uh, yeah, I think we've left people with a better roadmap on how to vote in the primaries if your main issue is Israel-Palestine. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. We really appreciate all your support through Patreon. And if you are not a Patreon donor, you can support us at patreon.com slash Thanks so much.